Uh, good morning, good to see you all. Uh, just a couple of things to mention to you. Um, would love you to have a Bible, so if you didn't get one earlier, please do uh, grab one from the back there. And also, uh, I've done a sheet of questions which you may like to follow uh, as I speak. They're available uh, just at the back of one or two. I don't know if there's a couple of stewards around that could distribute some of those around. I guess their main purpose uh, is for any young people here. But actually, I haven't done a PowerPoint this morning. And if it was me, I'd quite fancy having some notes uh, to look at if I was listening to this sermon. So feel free, if you're not a young person, maybe you're someone that's not used to coming to church and listening to a talk, just put your hand up and Angie will pass around uh, a sheet of questions and a pen as well. Uh, so that you can have a go at answering some of the questions from this talk. Please don't be shy in asking. There you go, Daph would like one as well. Now, as, as Liz was reading that passage, I wonder if you thought, that's just a bit weird. Maybe even as Liz read it herself, she might have thought that was a bit strange. Because there are these stories of Jesus on a mountain with people that lived hundreds of years before. There was this story of Jesus' actual appearance changing. There was a cloud that appeared, and then people just disappeared from the mountain. This may seem more like a scene from Doctor Who, or from a Harry Potter novel, with time travel or teleporting, or maybe some other strange sci-fi encounter. And then we get this other tale, this boy possessed by an evil spirit, writhing around, foaming at the mouth, with what seems to be an exorcism occurring. This seems more like some kind of horror film. And yet, this is the Bible. This is God's Word. In fact, as Gareth told us earlier, this is the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark written to tell people about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And again, as we heard earlier, this is the book of the Bible that the kids at Free at TKC have been thinking about this week. It's the same book that we at church here have been studying for the past few months. The kids were looking at the first eight chapters of Mark, where the main question, as Gareth said, was, who is Jesus? And the answer was, or is, Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. But now we move on to chapter 9. And there's another question. What has Jesus come to do? What has he come to do? We saw last week that in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now Jesus' close followers, his disciples, have just begun to understand who he is. 
But they don't seem to be able to see or understand that this great king, sent by God, is going to suffer and die. Because that's just not what heroes do, is it? You don't get a Superman movie where he turns up to gloriously rescue somebody or some people to save them from disaster. And then the film takes a strange twist where, oh, Superman dies. It just doesn't happen, does it? The disciples cannot understand what Jesus is saying. And in fact, one of them, Peter, he says, no, this this can't happen. The Savior will not die. It won't happen. Now, as I said, this section of Mark's gospel we look at this morning may seem a bit strange. But I just want us to try and help, try and help you understand that these supernatural yet real events are a continuation of Jesus' story, a continuation of his teaching. And they do show us some very specific things. I'm hoping to show you that they show us, firstly, that Jesus is the promised Son of God that all of history points to. Secondly, that we should listen to him. And thirdly, that we must put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. So firstly, let's have a look at the first few verses of this scene in chapter 9. To try and see that this story shows us that Jesus is the promised, glorious Son of God. You'll see that back in verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus has just promised to his disciples that some of them will see that the kingdom of God has come with power before they die. Now, this verse tells us that something will happen, but we're not quite sure what it is or when. But here in verse 2, have a look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain. Jesus takes three of his closest friends and followers up a mountain, away from everyone else. And there they see something of God coming with power. Jesus wants to show these three disciples his power and glory to help them believe that the Son of God must suffer. He must die and will be gloriously raised again, just as he has begun to teach them. Now, some of you will know that I work in a local private school, in a boys' prep school. Now, one of the advantages of working in a private school is that you get your lunches provided for you free of charge. And in fact, it's a lovely cooked lunch. And over the course of the year, there are various other functions and events as well where you get provided with fantastic menus, great food. Uh, You may not believe this, but I was 13 stone when I joined Shrewsbury House, which was 16 years ago. Uh, I'm not 13 stone any longer. But recently, the uh, catering contract for our school was up for grabs. 
So three different companies came in to pitch for the business. I was fortunate enough to be on the team. <laughs> and what they did, the most important part of their pitch, was a taster menu. Now, amazingly, every single one of the three companies decided on an Indian theme uh, for their taster menu. And if you know me, that is my idea of food heaven. So there I was, chomping away at three different curries one lunchtime. Now, these companies wanted to give us a glimpse of who they were, a glimpse of what they could provide for us as a school in the future, to show themselves at their best. That is actually something that Jesus does here for his disciples. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus is with his three disciples. And we're told, have a look at it, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, this word transfigured sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? It just simply means a change, trans, a change of shape or appearance, figure, a change of shape or appearance, transfiguration. If you prefer the word metamorphosis, a change of shape or appearance. Jesus' appearance changes before the eyes of the disciples. We're not exactly sure in what way it changes other than there's this description of dazzling whiteness. Now, if you're of my era or slightly older, I'm sure you might remember the Daz Doorstep Challenge. Danny Baker appeared at some random doorstep, knocked on the door and said, oh, hello, it's the Daz Doorstep Challenge. His challenge was for the person whose door he'd knocked on to show them their white clothing. Danny Baker's aim was to sell them Daz Ultra, the new super whitening washing powder, to make their clothes as white as could possibly be. Now, this transfiguration is no Daz doorstep challenge. This is a supernatural change of appearance. Peter, James, and John are there this experience, this vision, would actually have had some significant overtones for them from the Old Testament. Back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, the prophet Daniel had a vision where he saw the Ancient of Days, God. It says, The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. A vision of God. Or in Exodus chapter 24, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. Verses 15 and 16 say, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. 
So these visions of God, reminiscent of what the disciples are experiencing now on this mountain. They're called up a mountain. And you'll see that in verse 7, a cloud appears. Now this cloud is the sign of God's presence. Just again, like in the Old Testament, when the cloud surrounded the mountain. Or when the Israelites were fleeing from Egypt, a pillar of cloud guided and protected the Israelites. Now these Old Testament images, they are real events in their own right. But they all point forward to something else. In fact, to someone else. Someone promised, sent by God, who would come in power and glory. Depicted here in this transfiguration story, in glorious form. Showing the disciples that the person with them was indeed God's promised son. And then to confirm this further, two of the great Old Testament figures appear on the mountain with them. We don't know how. We're just told they're there. Verse 4. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now this is a bit of a heavyweight gathering of biblical characters now on this mountain. If Peter and James and John had played the game Who would you most like to invite for dinner from history? The people that are there on the mountain may well have figured quite high in their wish lists. I wonder if you were asked the question, if you could choose two or three people to have dinner with from any stage of history, who would you choose? Maybe something for you to chat about later and ask each other over lunch. But there is Moses... Moses representing the law of God, the one who led his people out of Egypt. And there is Elijah, Elijah representing the prophets, that great prophet of God who spoke out against false gods. And here they both are, with Jesus and his disciples on the mountain. But why? Why are they there? They are there to show that the one that they are with is Jesus. He is God's son. The one that God has promised as rescuer and savior. He is there with them. If you like, Elijah and Moses are basically saying to the disciples, this Jesus, he is the one. He's the one you've been waiting for. He is the promised king. Not not us. It's him. Jesus, God's son. These three disciples are being given a glimpse of God's glory. The glory of the Lord Jesus, showing them that the glorious king is with them. And one day, all will see him in his glory, but not yet. Here is their taster menu, the glimpse of Approved and confirmed by the Old Testament characters and these promises of Scripture. And then have a look at verse 7. To seal this, God himself speaks. And these are words we've heard before. 
at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. What's God saying? It's him. It's him. He is here. My son is here. So this rather strange incident on the mountain is to show the disciples that Jesus Christ, God's son, is God's glorious king. A glimpse of the glory was to show them the glory to come in the future. A taster is given to help them believe and to follow Jesus. But as well as showing who Jesus is, this scene is secondly to tell the disciples and us to listen to him, to listen to him. Again, look at verse 7. God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, Peter has recently shown that he's grasped who Jesus is by announcing, you are the Christ. But he's not really listening to him. He's still not taking on board what he is saying. Now, one of my favorite things to watch is something put on by Sky Sports on their cricket shows. They have these series of cricket masterclasses. Some of the recent legends of the game do these masterclasses. Whether it's Brian Lara, A.B. de Villiers, Ricky Ponting doing their batting masterclass. Or Curtly Ambrose, McGraw or Warren doing a bowling one. These, for me, are totally absorbing. You are there in the hands and minds of experts. Yesterday's was Kevin Peterson's batting masterclass. Now, what if I were to watch these classes, acknowledging and realizing that these people are true legends of the game? And yet, when it came to listening to their advice and taking on board what they were saying, my reaction was, nah, you're okay. You don't really get it properly. I'd be crazy. Crazy. Well, here, Peter realizes that this glorious king is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet he has not listened to him. He's not listened to the fact that he must suffer and die. And then he will be raised from the dead. Peter thought that he knew better. It won't happen, Jesus. It won't happen. Have a look back at verse 5. Because even here in verse 5, Peter reacts to Elijah and Moses being there. He says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. Here is classic Peter. Not sure what to say, yet rather than staying quiet, he still speaks. And actually what he says shows that he still has not listened to Jesus' words on his suffering and death. Peter suggests, let's pitch some tents. Let's hang around together, guys. Let's just stay here. Let's enjoy each other's company. Let's stay in the present. In a way, he is actually resisting Jesus' words on suffering. 
Let's stay here. Let's focus on the now. As Peter says this, the voice of God comes. Listen to my son. And to show exactly what the disciples should listen to, have a look at verse 8. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Elijah, Moses, Elijah, Elijah, Moses. They're gone. They're gone. Why? Why have they gone? You can imagine Peter going, I was, I was just enjoying being with them. I was keen to listen to some of their stories, to find out more about them, and to talk about some of those great old days. Listen to my son. Elijah and Moses have gone, so that only one person remains. There is only one that they should listen to. Jesus, this glorious son of God. And Jesus is saying to them, I must die. This is God's will. I've been called to suffer. You have been called to follow me. They must listen to Jesus' teaching about the cross. They must hear and understand that Jesus' death on the cross was part of his glory. The cross is not some dreadful mistake where God has got it wrong. Something that wasn't meant to happen. Suffering and death is not some denial of Christ's glory. In fact, the cross of Christ was to be the greatest display of Jesus' glory. And Jesus teaches his disciples that his true glory will not be seen until his death and resurrection. He reaffirms the message in verse 9 by telling them not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now was not the right time to tell others what they'd seen. Only after the cross and the resurrection would people understand what they'd seen on the mountain that day. They'd been given a glimpse, a taster, a taster of the glory to come. Resurrection glory. The glory to come on the final day. This was a taster to encourage them to listen. Did they get it? Have a look at verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Did they get it? No, they didn't get it. They could not fathom that their glorious king was going to suffer. Now, in some ways, we're at a great advantage today. We've got the bigger picture. We have the cross, the resurrection. We have the whole Bible. We have God's big picture of salvation and rescue. And despite this, just like Peter, we so often fail to listen, don't we? In a similar way to Peter, we think that we know best. We think we know better than the God who's mapped out the whole of history. 
We think we know better than the God who promises us eternal glory with him. We think we know better than the God who sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins. To take our blame. We think we know better than the God that promises to set us free. To rescue us. We don't listen, do we? And yet we listen to so many other things. We allow so many other voices to speak into our lives. To drown out God. These things soon have a greater influence on us than Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why is it that we become so much more worried about what other people say or think of us? Why do we crave acceptance of other people? Why do we crave attention? Why might your life be built around acceptance on social media? Why do we so quickly turn to the voices of today's society, to liberal popular thinking, celebrating this open culture of expressing ourselves in whatever way we want? Why, as I've been preparing this talk this week, have I been more worried about what you're going to think of this talk, what you're going to think of John Ackhurst, than me trying to point you to Jesus Christ? Why? Because just like Peter, we want our glory now. Let's stay here. Let's put up a shelter. Let's be comfortable now. That's what I'm like. And this only comes because our view of Christ's suffering is too small. We haven't understood truly the vastness of the cross of Christ. We haven't truly understood the incredible glory of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our view of the cross is too small. And before you know it, we've erected these shelters. And the shelters are one by one getting in the way of our view of the cross. And sooner or later, we lose sight of the cross altogether. We follow our own sinful hearts rather than listening to him. And hearing this promise of eternal glory. So the message of the transfiguration is that our glorious king is here. He is going to die and rise again in wonderful glory. And we can share that glory forever. Therefore, we must listen to him. And by the way, one day, you and I will be asked, have you listened to him? Did you listen to him? Now is the time to listen. And then thirdly and finally and very briefly, we have this story at the end of our reading of Jesus driving out this evil spirit from a boy when the other disciples have been unable to do so. You might think, well, how does this fit into the section? Why are we talking about this today? Shouldn't we do this next week? 
Well, if we ask the question, well, how does this episode help teach the disciples to listen to Jesus and believe in him? That may help us. We haven't got time to go into too much detail, but the story shows the disciples and us that listening to Jesus will need them to rely entirely upon him, to put their faith in him alone. To put it very simply, Jesus is the only one that can save or rescue. Now, having just shown his power and glory to three disciples, Jesus comes down the mountain. And he finds his other disciples, see in verse 14, he finds an argument going on with the teachers of the law and the crowd. And verse 18 tells us that the disciples have been unable to drive out this demon from the man's son. Now look on at verse 28 at the very end of the section. The disciples are clearly confused and disappointed about this. Verse 28 Why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus, I thought you'd given us authority to do this kind of thing. In fact, when Jesus comes down the mountain to this scene, it appears that the devil is in control. An evil spirit grips the boy in verse 18. The evil spirit cannot be moved. This boy seems helpless unable to escape the clutches of evil. Now, very simply put, this is a picture of the natural state of everyone. Everyone. Captive to sin and evil. Unable to escape it on our own. Now, you may be here today with no real idea of who Jesus is. Maybe it's your first time with us. It's great to see you. Maybe you don't know much about him at all. Maybe you're here and you're just beginning to wonder whether this guy Jesus is worth listening to. Whether he's worth checking out a bit more. I want to encourage you to see the words of the boy's dad in a conversation he has in this story with Jesus. Have a look in verses 22 to 24. The disciples have been unable to remove this evil spirit. And in verse 22, the dad speaks to Jesus. Halfway through he says, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now, Jesus is teaching here that faith is not about yourself. This is not about the disciples. This is not whether the man or the disciples have strong enough faith. It is totally about whether they have faith in Jesus to be able to do anything. In a sense, the disciples cannot drive out this demon because they don't believe that Jesus can do all things. Now, Christianity is not about the strength of our faith. It is all about who we put our faith in.
This dad realizes that he is helpless. His son from childhood has been gripped by this demon. And he can do nothing. All he can do is cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy from the one who can do all things. Now let me tell you this morning, that being a Christian is realizing that we need rescue. Realizing there are things that hold us captive. And realizing that no self-help guide, no trying harder to be good, no following of certain rules will ever deliver us. In fact, it's not about us at all. It is about the glorious King, Jesus Christ. Only he can rescue and save. Now this man knows that he is uncertain in his belief. He cries out, help me overcome my unbelief. Now that is the picture the disciples need to hear. That is the picture that we sitting here today need to hear and remember. Just look down at verse 29. Jesus replied to his disciples, this kind can come out only by prayer. Why can the demon only come out by prayer? Because prayer is a sign of total dependence upon Jesus, not on ourselves at all. Jesus is teaching the disciples in this section, they need to listen to him. They need to put their faith in him, to totally depend upon him. There is great glory to come. But the object of their faith needs to be Jesus Christ. Not themselves. Not anything else. And the amazing news is that our faith may be very weak. But Jesus says, we can place our small, unbelieving faith in a great and glorious saviour. Christianity is not something to turn to when you think you've got everything sussed. When you think you know all the answers. When you've understood everything. Christianity is about weak individuals. Wobbly faith. Looking and seeing that there is a strong Jesus who we can trust totally. And the great news is that Jesus sees us. Just as with this man, he takes pity on us. He wants to help us. Because Jesus is the promised Messiah, the glorious Son of God. And we are called to listen to him. So why not this morning, with that man, cry out to him? Cry out these words. Help me overcome my unbelief. Why don't you begin to place your trust in him this morning? There is the promise of great glory to come in the future if you do. Let's pray together.
as we pray. I'm going to put a few words of a song up on the screen. You may want to read them through and use them as a prayer for yourself. The song, Above the Voices of the World Around Me. Some of the words in verse 3. Lord, I believe, help now my unbelieving. I come in faith because your promise stands. Your word of pardon and of peace receiving. All that I am, I place into your hands. Let me become what you shall choose to make me. Freed from the guilt and burden of my sins. Jesus is mine, who never shall forsake me. And in his love, my newborn life begins. Lord, thank you that you see us. You take pity on us. And you want to help us. You want to save us and rescue us. I pray that we would put our small, weak faith in you now, our great and our mighty and glorious God and Savior. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.